This is the Visit the Zoo podcast. Today we hear about nine deadly snakes. We try to guess three mystery animal sounds and a lot more. Again, and welcome everybody to the Visit the Zoo podcast. My name is Frederick Fishman, and I am your host and also the author of the 12 book series, 120 Animals of Visit the Zoo, and that is now available as an ebook and print book, audio book, also as a DVD. Also, don't uh, forget about our newly updated anthology, which includes all 12 books in one volume. You can get to all of that by going to our main site at zoo animals, the plural, that's zoo animals dot info. Also, my author site, my main author site is Frederick Fishman, spelled F-I-C-H-M-A-N, And if you want to help and support everything we do here at the Visit the Zoo podcast, why don't you check out our Patreon page as well as P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, Patreon dot com slash Visit the Zoo. Okay, let's get started. And let's start with the the zoo news. And I've got three stories for you today. Let's start with the first one. And this is an interesting title. This is a fairly new story. It says, does exposure to animals during childhood buffer the body's response to stress as an adult? New research comparing men who grew up on farms with men who grew up in cities offers evidence that exposure to animals during childhood affects the immune system's response distress in childhood. In ways large and small, farm kids and city kids grow up worlds apart from each other. A study published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences explores the possible consequences of that divergence for the health of modern men. German researchers recruited men under 40 whose childhood fit into one of the two starkly different patterns. Either they had spent the years before they turned 15 in a city of more than 100,000 or and never had a pet or they spent those years on a farm raised with livestock. And it says here that the, the finding strengthens the suspicion that growing up in sanitized urban environments is making many of us more fragile when it comes to warding off certain diseases. Called the hygiene theory, the idea is that early exposure to dirt and to animals who maintain their link to the Earth's microbial system. That's the best way to put it, I guess. They used another word here, but I'm not going to use it. Trains are developing immune system to handle stressors large and small and tamps down that immune system's occasional penchant for overreaction. The hygiene theory is often held up as an explanation for the dramatic uptick in the incidence of childhood autoimmune diseases such as asthma, allergies, type 1 diabetes, and rheumatoid arthritis. And it's often cited as a contributor in diseases that involve unchecked inflammation, including cardiovascular disease, some cancers, and some common health disorders as depressions. Finally, but here's an intriguing tidbit from a 2001 study carried out at the University of Zagreb. Young adults who had a pet as a child were more empathetic and more prone 
to choosing helping professions and more oriented social values than were young adults who had grown up without pets. I don't know what the moral of that story is, that you should roll around in dirt or go out in the middle of nowhere and and get exposed to God knows what else. Uh, Maybe, I don't know. Of course, to get to the animals in the wild, you have to do that. But, you know, it's like every other study that you hear about these days. You just got to just take it with a grain of salt and move on, I guess. The second story is a story about wood frogs who don't pee all winter. Uh, If you've ever been able to find a bathroom in a moment of need, you'd know the gotta-go feeling. Well, that's nothing compared with a wood frog, which doesn't urinate all winter. In Alaska, wood frogs go eight months without peeing, and scientists have now figured out how they do it, or more accurately, how they survive without doing it. They recycle urea, the main waste in urine, into useful nitrogen, and it keeps the small frogs alive as they hibernate and freeze inside and out. It doesn't warm them up. Instead, urea protects cells and tissues even as the critter's heart, brain, and bloodstream stop. The frogs can do it because special microbes in their guts recycle the urea, according to a new study in Tuesday's Proceedings of the Royal Society. Some call the frog pee a type of antifreeze. Their skin is frosty. They're like little rocks. They're frozen, as described by one scientist. But once the temperature's warm, they come back to life. Wood frogs live all over America and in the Antarctic Circle. Some Alaskan wood frogs get as cold as zero degrees, as described further by the scientists. And our final story is from the Washington Post from a few days ago, and the title of the story is Federal Agents Peered into a Duffel Bag on the Mexican Border, and They Found a Tiger Cub. The three men crossed the U.S. southern border in Texas with a black duffel bag on an apparent mission to deliver their lucrative product to the United States, but they caught wind of border agents nearby readying to intercept them near Brownsville. Brownsville, by the way, is at the very tip of Texas. It led to a calculation, now what, and what to do with the unconscious tiger weighing down the duffel bag. Well, the men retreated back into Mexico, and they left the bag, and the male cub became an unexpected ward of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Not an average day in the field, said Irma Chapa, a spokesman for the Rio Grande Valley of the Customs and Border Protection Service. The tiger was turned over to the Brownsville Zoo, and it appears to be two months old and in good health, but it's likely that the cub was tranquilized to keep it still and quiet during the journey, the senior veterinarian Tom DeMar told the Washington Post. You're not going to stuff a live tiger into a bag without an argument, DeMar said. The cub was an apparent note in the billion-dollar trade of animal smuggling, and it was in, in unfortunate company. About 350 million plants and animals are sold around the world annually, generating between 7 and $23 billion, Washington-based Conservation Defenders of Wildlife said in a 2015 report. Latin America has emerged as a fulcrum in the endangered and exotic species trade, feeding the booming U.S. market, the group's senior counsel said. A quarter of the 50,000 animals and wildlife products seized in U.S. Ports of entry from 2005 to 2014 originated in Latin America. Brazil, Mexico, Colombia are the most biodiverse nations in the world, providing an unbroken land bridge 
to traffic exotic animals from fragile ecosystems to the United States. Nearly 55,000 animals were seized at ports of entry from 2005 to 2014, with an unknown number that arrived in the United States undetected. So those are our three stories for today, and we'll have more for you again next week. We come to animal sounds now, and let's see if you can find out if you can think about these sounds and see if you can interpret it and decide what they are. Let's have our first animal sound. Let's listen to it carefully. Okay, let's go with the second sound now. Let's listen to this one. And how about our third animal sound? Those are kind of difficult. I don't know whether you'll be able to decipher any of those because they're not really truly evident as to what they are, but we'll find out later on in the episode. I'll tell you a little bit about those animals as well as identify them. Now, usually at this time in the episode, I give you an animal description, and I'm going to do the same thing now, but I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to discuss, and I'm going to do this as a live read, by the way. I'm not going to roll in anything from any of the previous recordings uh, that I've made for the Visit the Zoo series of books. I saw an article about two, two, three days ago online about the world's 26 deadliest snakes. I thought, well, that's interesting. I mean, these are the ones I want to avoid for sure. And, and I was going to record it, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do this as a live read, but I'm not going to give you all 26 because there's a description of all of them. So I'm going to spread this out over a few episodes, not necessarily one right after another. Let's start today with the first nine of these snakes. Now, you can't see the pictures, of course, and I'll do a little bit of description. This one is, it looks like brush-colored browns, tans. It's got little bumps over its body. This is called the saw-scaled viper. And in many ways, the, it's the opposite of the mighty cobra. This is a small snake. It only grows to three feet, but it carries an extremely potent hemotoxic and cytotoxic venom that can cause prolonged bleeding as well as debilitating strokes. There are multiple subspecies of the small-scaled viper which can be found in the northern and eastern parts of Africa and in the wetter areas of the Arabian Peninsula. This next snake you may have heard of, it's called the Inland Taipan. And what makes the inland Australia's Inland Taipan the most venomous snake in the world? Did you hear that? This one is the most venomous snake in the world. This animal specializes in hunting mammals, and its venom has evolved to be especially deadly to all warm-blooded species. That includes us, folks. Each bite delivers a triple threat. The Inland Taipan's venom cocktail contains neurotoxins, hemotoxins, and myotoxins that all attack the body's nervous system, blood, and muscles simultaneously. Some reports say that an adult Inland Taipan has enough venom to kill 100 people. Here is our third deadly snake. By the way, its color is very light, is very lightly tanned and almost white uh, towards the bottom of the snake's belly. Third snake is the common lancehead, also known as 
Bothrops atrox or the fer de lance. It's an aggressive species of a subspecies of pit viper, and that can be found in the lowlands of northern South America, as well as on certain islands of the Caribbean. It grows up to five feet long, is mottled gray and brown, blending in very well with the foliage. The venom is a strong hemotoxin that causes a variety of neural disorders, including memory loss and paralysis. Okay, here's our fourth one. This is a tiger snake. It's got stripes, and it looks like it can lift its head and front part of its body up off the ground at least six inches. Tiger snakes are medium-sized snakes that typically grow to around four feet in length and are common throughout southern Australia and Tasmania. Its name comes from the distinctive gold and black stripe pattern. The venom contains neurotoxins and mitotoxins, which can cause extreme pain, paralysis, and sometimes suffocation. However, the toxin takes a while to take effect, so bites are typically aren't fatal if treated immediately. The Western Diamondback Rattlesnake. Now, this one I know because I've confronted it twice in my life. Once as a full-grown snake and once as a baby. For many, you aren't in the American Southwest until you've seen a Western Diamondback Rattlesnake. This snake is smaller and more tan-colored than its eastern cousins, allowing it to blend in with the desert sands and scrub. It has extraordinarily large venom glands and specially evolved fangs, allowing the snake to deliver an oversized dose of venom to its victims. It is generally non-aggressive, only attacking if humans provoke it. This is snake number six. This is the king cobra. Many poisonous snakes aren't especially large, relying on venom to incapacitate prey instead of attempting to crush it with its long body. However, the mighty king cobra defies this rule. This species typically grows up to 13 feet and 30 pounds, although the longest one on record was a whopping 19 feet long. Like other cobras found in India and Southeast Asia, it has highly developed venom that can even kill elephants. That's a king cobra. Now this next one is probably one you've heard of. It's called the black mamba. I would describe it as a very smooth-skinned, small-headed, slender snake uh, with tan tan coloring. The black mamba may have hit subculture fame in the Kill Bill movies, but it is also one of the most poisonous snakes in the world. An adult black mamba carries enough venom to kill 10 people, but it always bites multiple times. Because of this, the victims typically have less than half an hour to receive treatment. Black mambas are common in forests throughout eastern and southern Africa. Number eight, the eastern diamondback rattlesnake. It looks similar, a little bit darker than the western. The eastern diamondback rattlesnake is North America's largest poisonous snake. It can grow up to eight feet long and has a distinctive gray, black, and tan diamond pattern along its body. Generally, the eastern diamondback rattlesnake is non-aggressive and will only bite when significantly provoked. However, it has a potent venom that can cause significant bleeding, pain, and in some cases, death if untreated. Well, I'm sure if I got bitten, I would treat it. Now, this next one is such a strange-looking snake. It's it's black and white and has the big pouches on the side where the venom's kept. It's got these two horns on the top of its head that stick straight up in the air. It's called the rhinoceros viper. 
This slow-moving stout viper species may look similar to the Gabon viper, but these snakes have their own quirks. When cornered, the viper emits an ear-splitting hiss that can be compared to a shriek. Its venom attacks the nerves and circulatory systems of its victims. The rhinoceros viper gets its name from the two to three large sets of horns at the nose. They are actually horn-like scales that I would like to avoid. All right, let's go back to our animal sounds now, and I'll tell you a little bit about them. Uh, The first one's a little hard to hear, so I'm going to crank it up just a little bit and let you listen to it, and then I'll tell you what it is. Wild and domestic rabbits are small mammals that populate around the world. I'm sure that all of you who who are listening have seen rabbits. The adult rabbits are called bucks, and the females are called does, and young rabbits are called bunnies. The adult rabbits also used to be called conies as well. In the wild, they are prey for all types of other larger mammals, and humans sometimes keep them as pets. They are found in all sizes and colors and configurations, and most rabbits form small groups, and they live underground in what are called burrows or warrens. Half of the world's population of rabbits live in North America, and they're scattered around the rest of the world. And man has used them for eons for food, clothing, and of course, in folklore as well. Here's our next animal sound. Let's see if you guessed it. That is a moose. It's the largest of the deer species, and it's found in North America, in the Baltic States, Russia, and Scandinavia. They're solitary creatures. They really don't form herds. They're usually not aggressive, but they can be if provoked. They're big, and I've been close to one. Not close, but close enough to see them, and they are very tall and big. They're at the shoulder. They're 4.6 or almost 7 feet tall, and males can weigh as much as 1,543 pounds, and females usually weigh between 441 and 1,080 pounds. They are herbivores, which means they eat plants and bark and fruit. And those are our three animal sounds for today. to the final segment of today's Visit the Zoo, and this is where I read a poem. And I'm going to read a poem from a very famous poet who lived between 1770 and 1850, and his name is William Wordsworth, and you probably have heard his name. He's an English poet, and he wrote a lot about nature. And this poem that he wrote is called Animal Tranquility and Decay, again, by William Wordsworth. The little hedgerow birds that peck along the roads Regard him not. He travels on, and in his face, his step, his gait. In one expression, every limb, his look, and bending figure all bespeak of a man who does not move with pain, but moves with thought. He's insensibly subdued to settled quiet. He is one by whom all effort seems forgotten, one to whom long patience hath such mild composure given. That patience now doth seem a thing of which he hath no need. He is by nature led to peace 
so perfect that the young behold with envy what the old man hardly feels. That is our episode of Visit the Zoo for today. Uh, this is episode number 30, and I want to thank you very much for joining me. As always, I please ask you to subscribe, rate, and review. Subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, if you would, or wherever you're listening to this. It would be appreciated. And don't forget about the anthology book that has just been updated and published with all 12 books in one volume. You can get links to that and a few other things that might interest you on our main website at zooanimals.info or that's zooanimalsplural.info or go to Frederick Fishman, that's spelled F-I-C-H-M-A-N dot com. If you want to support and help all that we do here at the Visit the Zoo Project, you can go to patreon.com slash visit the zoo and that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash visit the zoo. And I will give you a little heads up for next week's episode. I've just found some audio that I'm going to pull down from the very famous National Geographic photographer, Joel Sartori. He's put together a project called the Photo Arc, where he's trying to photograph as many of the animals that inhabit zoos and out in the wild as possible. He is a, he was just named in 2012 a fellow of the National Geographic Society and he does shoot for them, but he also has other contributions he gives to many other magazines. So I'm going to play you some audio for him, from him and tell you a little bit about him and a little bit about his books. That'll be on the next episode of Visit the Zoo. I want to thank you very much for joining me, and I hope you had a lot of fun. And I've said many times, I really enjoy recording these for you, and I'm going to keep on doing it. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. Bye for now.